From Newstown in Sacramento, this is the Capital Connection Podcast for Friday, March 7th. I'm John Myers, political editor at News 10, alongside Anthony York of the Los Angeles Times. Are you going to make sure that you set your clock forward on Sunday? Uh, is that this weekend? Yes. Wow. Okay, well then, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I've just given Anthony some news. We have taken the podcast on the road on this uh, Friday morning at a local coffee shop. Maybe we'll start plugging the coffee shops if we get free coffee. Uh, maybe so. Well, should we should we try it now? No. Not this time. Okay. We'll inform you yeah, exactly. Undisclosed location. We've got to be better entrepreneurs, I think, uh, as things go. Uh, yeah, a sponsored podcast. Why not? All right, we'll we'll get back to that. Uh, have I been saying that for a few weeks? Um, so, uh, as we close out this week, um, want to talk a little bit about. Um, gosh, I think everything kind of almost lines up together with the. Uh, electoral calculations that people are making either inside the Capitol or outside on the um, newly paved campaign trail. But um, uh, where shall we start? Should we start uh, uh, gubernatorially or or legislatively? Sure. Well, I mean, today is the the, uh, filing deadline for for candidates, the last day. And as Democrats are gathering in Los Angeles, and and we're not there. Neither one of us. Why is that? (laughs) I've got some answers, but let's... let's, Another podcast. Another podcast. uh, but uh, so we saw we saw some movement this week. We saw a, uh, a Republican enter the race for state controller Ashley Swearingen, the mayor of Fresno. Um, and um, and as of today, the fields will be set, and we'll know sort of what we're dealing with in this first ever, well, first since 1998 statewide open primary. And even then, the rules are different because now it's not just about who votes for someone. It's about the fact that only two candidates make it to November. I want to talk about the Swearingen um, announcement a little bit because uh, Anthony and I and countless others in the world of politics have heard Ashley Swearingen's name, you know, bandied about lots of times as a candidate who might be, you know, very attractive to the Republican field, has a story, is a successful local mayor. Some may quibble with her record. That'll certainly come up in a campaign. Um, You know, represents a a new face in California Republican politics. Everybody has said the party needs to kind of turn the page, and they've got more than one opportunity for that in 2014. But she also enters a, a field where you only have two Democrats right now in this race for state controller, and you could easily see her moving, you know, making this a very interesting case if she makes it to the top two in the fall. Yeah, I think that it would be a real race. You look up and down the ticket, there aren't many races out there that people think will be competitive. And uh, and with the state controllers race, you have two Democrats running, Betty Yee and John Perez, who don't have a lot of statewide name ID. Uh, they have a distinct advantage in that they are Democrats. And in California, that's an advantage as much as Ashley Swearingen's uh, Republican affiliation is a disadvantage statewide. But she could absolutely make a race of it. And I think that's kind of going to be in a, in a year without much political intrigue. That might be one place where us junkies in the Capitol sort of focus to see, uh, to test a couple of things. I mean, just how, uh, just how bad the Republican brand is and uh, and test their abilities to kind of begin rebuilding their bench statewide. And and look just really briefly, we don't want to spend too much time on that one race, but look at her, you know, her record in Fresno, uh, you know, she'll make arguments about jobs and the economy. And again, some people will, will see it differently there. Uh, she supports high-speed rail, which most Republicans don't. And that's actually going to be, I think, a potential contrast with another 
uh, prominent Republican candidate on the ballot. Crazy Train, no, no hint there. Yeah, the, ca- Captain Crazy Train. Captain Crazy Train to him. Um, she has been seen with the governor lately. She was seen with the president talking about bipartisan solutions to the drought. That could all work in her favor. And John Perez and Betty E on the Democratic side, the Assembly Speaker and a member of the Board of Equalization, that could be a, a, a pretty bitter, tough campaign, even though the Speaker has an awful lot of money and is racking up endorsements. I don't know. And controller is a controller is a great spot if you're a voter and you're looking to kind of split your ticket, right? Because you want to play into that fiscal responsibility of Republicans. She she could pull out a win there if she gets to, to November. And, and the interesting contrast is, I mean, you look at this compared to uh, you know, races like what was it, 2006 or 2010, where you had uh, uh, the race for controller was a, a moderate Republican, Abel Maldonado, against a more conservative Tony Strickland. And in that closed primary system, it was Strickland who went on to get the nomination and get trounced in the in the general. And so, um, it's, I think this is an example of the new rules uh, that that we were talking about, sort of coming into coming into play here just a little bit and to see how someone like Ashley Swearingen might help in the repositioning or refocusing of the Republican Party. Well, the other person who wants to do that is uh, Neil Kashkari, who's running for governor and who um, ramped up his rhetoric on uh, Thursday with a speech to the Sacramento Press Club in his, in his quest to, uh, well, to make it to the to the November ballot to challenge Brown and and you know you listen to that speech and you listen to everything out of the Kashkari campaign that's the crazy train reference there's no mention of Tim Donnelly his Republican uh, challenger uh, assemblyman from uh, San Bernardino County and there's not going to be I suspect I mean if you're if you're Kashkari you want to keep your focus on Brown, and that's how you get yourself in the headlines. And, and his comments on Thursday about Jerry Brown responsible for the destruction of the middle class, he's ramping up that rhetoric that's very different for Republicans. Like we've talked about before, these issues of class and poverty and income inequality, he, I don't know, maybe his, his folks, hashtag Aaron McClear, they see an opening. Uh, potentially. I think it's just going to be a matter of how they're able to communicate that message to voters. I mean, as well attended as the lunch at the press club was. It was well attended. But I I think it went unnoticed by the vast majority of people who will be voting in June. And and so um, I think with Kashkari, part of the the question has always been resources. Not that Tim Donnelly is a fundraising juggernaut, but whether Neil Kashkari will have the resources needed to communicate that message broadly in in a June primary. I mean, he seems to have some backing. He was doing a fundraiser with Henry Paulson, and there's, there's some, uh, certainly some folks in the, in the financial sector where he comes from that are going to be backing him. But, but which Republicans, if any, will, will be ponying up the money to allow Kashkari to distribute his sort of new Republican message? And, and, and then I think, you know, a, a fascinating question will be, won't it, is, um, uh, is he able to draw out any of the Brown camp into any kind of debate, any kind of exchange. I mean, obviously, some of Brown's longtime political operatives were in attendance Thursday at the press club and immediately criticized uh, Kashgari as not having any details. Of course, Jerry Brown wasn't a detail-rich candidate in 2010 at this point, and frankly, almost until the election. Um, but, you know, the governor, right, we've talked about this. The governor wants to govern. He doesn't want to campaign. His campaign, his strategy is to is to be the guy in the job, not the guy out on the campaign trail for as long as possible. Yeah, and I think until he feels somebody actually nipping at his heels, that will remain the strategy. Um, I think Kashkari's got some ground to cover before he gets to the governor's heels. And uh, what we heard was, to 
in, increased yapping, increased yipping. I don't know. Yipping or yapping. That sounds like a small dog. And as you know, Neil Kashkari has Newfoundland, so maybe it's uh, maybe it will, maybe it was Sutter yipping back. <laughs> what I mean, do you you know what, what, the, the conventions are coming up here? We just always reference the fact that we won't be in lovely Los Angeles this weekend, but the governor's going to speak there. All of the other prominent Democrats are going to speak. That's. I guess that's really kind of the governor's first real campaign speech and maybe the only one for several months. I mean, and, and then what, he goes back down under the radar? I think that's right. And again, it's sort of the campaigning by governing. I mean, I, what we're going to hear from the governor this weekend, I would imagine it's not going to be terribly different than anything we've heard from the state of the from the beginning of the year. You know, I think the state of the state in some ways kind of laid out the the campaign message, which is, look, we've we've come a long way. The finances are stabilized. We've got a lot of work to do. We've got to hold the line, and we've got to implement some of these major reforms and prison policy and, and education funding that we've passed over the last couple of years. And it's very much a stay-the-course message getting back to the the uh, the Dana Carvey campaign. That yes, we said about. that a podcast, right? No, stay the course. Uh, no, not, it wouldn't be prudent. No, no to taxes. <laughs> a thousand points of light. So there you go. If he says a thousand points of light, I'm really going to be convinced. I think he's more likely to quote the Mao, you know, the let a thousand flowers bloom. I think uh, in refer- political quotes that involve the number 1,000, I'm, I'm going with Mao. Over. Can you imagine, though, if he if he quoted Mao, Tim Donnelly would just be doing backflips of the excitement of communism, socialism, and everything else he's talked about. He's quoted Mao in the past, so you know I I don't think the governor's concerned about that. The, the looking fast forwarding a week, we could talk about this more next week too. But with the Republican convention, Kashkari and Donnelly both show up, you know. And if you're Kashkari, do you want the headline of that you're telling the hard truths to the party? You're gone into the lion, you know, the lion's den, you know. I'm, I'm, you know. I mean, you know, it's almost like the Feinstein convention lore from decades ago, where she, you know, said the tough truths to Democrats. I mean, you know, right? That's that's the narrative he would want out of that con- convention. Absolutely, and I think that, um, um, yeah, just as, as I mean, the, the people that are going to be attending the Republican convention in Burlingame next week are not going to be, ne- well, I take that back, but I mean, but th- those are not necessarily, a lot of them are not the Kashkari voters. I mean, I think that if it's, any, if it's anything like Republican conventions in years past, there may be some more enthusiasm for Donnelly than Kashkari. That would not surprise me at all. I don't think we can make a... a predictive comment about about the uh, the race for second place, which I think we can agree is for second place, right, uh, based on what happens in Burlingame and, uh, next week. So let's talk about under the Capitol Dome, I think, a view of the electoral landscape as well, as I referenced at the beginning of the podcast. Um, I think that's clearly one way to look at the package of bills that uh, Senate Democrats rolled out on Thursday. Uh, which would be called, I suppose, ethics reform bills. But really it's three bills that deal, deal with gifts, that deal with uh, campaign reporting, um, and clearly, you know, ripped from the headlines, as the phrase is, either the... the, the That's very law and order. You want to do the sound? <laughs> no. I don't know. You, you wanted to, but then you were off mic when you did it. I stopped myself. I didn't do it. He stopped himself. Um, but clearly, I mean, you know, whether it's the the large number of gifts that Ron Calderon, the embattled and now indicted state senator, took over the years, whether it's the headlines of the uh, lobbyist and lobbying firm fine for throwing fundraisers at the, the, um, the, the main lobbyist's home here in Sacramento, uh, fined by the FPPC, clearly... 
you know, they sense a political vulnerability there. As, as Daryl Steinberg, the president of Pro Tem, uh, said at the event at the Capitol to reporters, it's perception matters, and we all know that in politics. Not to say these aren't interesting reforms. I mean, certainly a limit on annual gifts from 440 bucks to 200 bucks. Uh, nothing at all from lobbyists. No more sporting events and golf games. Of course, you know, again, it's not everything, but it's they're they're mindful that the public could be watching and that this could be politically harmful. Somebody suggested that this legislation should be dubbed the Lady Gaga bill, and no no more Lady Gaga concerts. Remember, in the Calderon, in the uh, Calderon affidavit, the leaked affidavit, which, well, anyway, that one. There was discussion. <laughs> there was discussion uh, of uh, Calderon at uh, at a fundraiser at the Staples Center at a Lady Gaga concert. So, um, and if you look in the gift reports, I mean, there are all sorts of concerts and tickets and Disney on Ice and 49ers games and and I think some of the legislators that were up there introducing that legislation had taken a lot of those. I wrote that yesterday. Yeah, you looked. I mean, it begged the question. You had to look at their Form 700s. Now, they didn't take a lot, but they clearly took theme park tickets and sporting tickets. And, you know, and, and that, doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's some huge hypocrisy, but that it is widespread in who accepts gifts. There is a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do element to this. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, it, it well... But if the laws are different, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. The thing is, is that, you know, as I, as I asked at the event, too, this is not the first time that this idea has come up. Like, for instance, banning gifts. We've had two different lawmakers, uh, former legislators over the years, pushing gift bans. Uh, Alberto Torrico, Democrat who was in the Assembly, had a gift ban bill. And Sam Blakesley, a Republican who was both in the Assembly and the Senate, pushed gift ban bills. Blakesley is being most prominent, I think, over a couple of years that uh, Democratic uh, leadership in the Senate shelved. And I and that I raised that point at the event. I mean, you know, we've... So what's changed? And really what's changed are the headlines. Uh, yeah, I mean, and and I think this is a continuing effort to sort of try to try to blunt the damage um, of, of, of the image of the legislature that's being done by the, the Ron Calderon and, and Rod Wright cases that are in the headlines. And, um, uh, you know, that, that's not good for the image of the institution. And so in as much as uh, this might clean it up, um, you know, I, I think that you're right. This is part of this is just uh, a, a reaction to the headlines. And that's but isn't that what politics is supposed to be? I suppose, but you know, let's since you've invoked uh, both Calderon and Wright, let's draw that into that part of it too. Because, um, in a, if in fact part of this is to try to kind of blunt that or mitigate that damage or, or whatever the proper phrase is, you still have an ongoing, not as loud as it was uh, two or three weeks ago, but an ongoing discussion about how those two senators are being treated, in particular, Wright. And you saw again this week, which is kind of the pivot to the week's events, you saw again this week uh, at least one Republican in the state Senate standing up again demanding an expulsion vote of Rod Wright, who a a jury has found guilty on um, multiple counts of voter fraud and perjury in regards to where he lives. Uh, And Democrats uh, saying, no, 
it's over. He has decided to take a leave of absence. That's it. That's the end of story until a judge uh, formally weighs in on the guilty verdict. If it's a conviction, then he has to leave. Now, whether that resonates beyond the three, four blocks from the lovely capital into the electorate, I don't know. But it is another one of those very difficult places where if you're trying to improve the overall image after all of this chaos, that's that's not what you want. Yeah, I, I do think in terms of uh, look, Wright has been convicted and Calderon has not. But if you look at the severity of the crimes involved, although Wright has already been convicted, I think the one that would do the, the greater damage to the image of the legislature clearly is Calderon, right? I mean, that that just those uh, political corruption is a little different than, than living down the road from your district, I, I think, in the eyes of the public. Um, that being said, you know, it, it doesn't help... That, that you have a is, is it convicted I'm not a lawyer is, it, is there some, is there a reason we don't say convicted well the pro tem Daryl Steinberg who is a lawyer now not law lawyers agree here is making the argument that until the judge uh, agrees with the jury verdict it's not technically a conviction and that's what he believes and he says it's in the law and again I'm not a lawyer so I'll, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt that until there's a conviction uh, Senator Wright would not have to leave office. Now it's just, and that's not going to happen until May, apparently. So, yeah, you and I are not the legal eagles, but... Yeah, and so, uh, and look, this this will play out over the next few weeks one way or another, um, and and we'll see, and, then, and we'll be, then we'll be discussing the implications, I think sort of the inside baseball implications, if, if this brings the uh, Democrats below the two-thirds majority, what that could mean for, for policies this spring. Well, that's not even inside. That's what I wanted to mention briefly. That's almost the outside game because that's a, another story that I was trying to look at at the beginning of the week is that the two, you know, everybody, people mistake and talk about the two-thirds power in a lot of other places, but the two things that we are talking a lot about are water and a budget measure regarding rainy day reserves and the reserve fund. And those take two-thirds votes to put on the ballot, or more precisely, they're going to take a two-thirds vote to take the existing measures off the November ballot and put on new ones. Is that true? Is that true? There's some debate over whether it's a simple majority to move, but a two-thirds to place a new one back. Ah, okay. Someone email in. Well, we'll, we'll, yeah. Ledge Council, if you're listening. (laughs) Ms. Boyer-Vine or anybody in the office. Or or even Tom Hiltek. You know, Tom Hiltek might have some thoughts on this one. This is the multiple shout-outs now. But but, but the point is, if you want to craft a new one, let's put it that way. That we do know. If you want to craft a new water bond measure, if you do want to craft a new rainy day measure, you're now going to have to have a bipartisan agreement in at least one house. And you might have had to before if you had Democrats splinter off. But I still make the argument that a D after your name is a safer vote than having to go across the aisle and get a Republican because on water, Republicans are much more strident on the storage issue than Democrats are. And on the budget reserve issue, they are much more strident about the um, impenetrability of a cap or a reserve fund. And those are tough things to overcome. Yeah, and I think, you know, on water, look, it's not a clean partisan I, I haven't gone back and looked. My guess, though, is if you go back and look at the votes from 2009, that both Ron Calderon and Rod Wright were votes in favor of that bond, and they barely got to, two, to two-thirds. Um, so it's going to be a struggle to find 27 in the Senate. But on that issue, you can expect some Democrats to peel off, some Republicans to join on, I would imagine, if and when a deal comes together. The budget reserve is a little different. This is a big deal for the governor, and not only that, there is an existing measure in place, as you say. And so, uh, 
and and that existing measure ACA four. Democrats say that's a that's more like a spending cap, and that's. Uh, in order for Republicans to agree to move that and put up votes for something else the governor wants, uh, that's going to be a lift, not just for the legislature, but for the governor, I think. And that's, that actually is the one I'm the most interested in because, because Republicans would, if you talk to Republicans in the building, while they would like to take another look at that, they're fine with that uh, compared to some of the things they think Democrats would want otherwise, a looser cap or a looser reserve. It is a reserve, but as everybody knows, it almost could a, a result as a cap if you have to push away money that you can't spend on programs. Democrats definitely, I think, would fear having that on the ballot because the voters have said they want a strong cap, and the voters might be inclined to support that. And and to further complicate this just a little bit, you and I have both talked about how the governor has uh, kind of intimated that he'd like a clean ballot, that he doesn't want a lot of other complicated stuff. Well, the one thing I actually think he would want is a strong budget reserve thing because that could kind of show, again, his fiscal prudence, his fiscal sensibility. So uh, the, 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 the politics of the, of the reserve one now, absent the two-thirds of Democrats, I think is, is fascinating and more complicated. I'm not sure he would endorse ACA 4, you know, as written. In fact, he's gone out of his way to make right. a, an alternative to ACA 4 the centerpiece. Now, whether that's for political prudence uh, because he doesn't want to you know, upset labor heading into a big election or whether that's because he believes his alternative truly is better and ACA 4 is otherwise flawed. I don't know, but um, but we'll see. I mean, it'll be interesting to see, You know, I think, after May, um, whether the governor can get the votes he needs to put his measure on the ballot. All right. All right. So with that, uh, and make sure you read today's Nooner. Oh, is that another shout-out? No, well, it's kind of a shout-out. Is that a shout-out for you or the Nooner? Uh, I think for the, I don't know, for the... Scott Lay, are you listening? Anyway, make sure you read today's Nooner. It's got uh, all kinds of news in it. That's a, <laughs> that's, that's my plug. You're chuckling. Oh, come on. It, you, what, you think I wasn't going to say that? I, I thought maybe you weren't. Uh, you maybe thought wrong. Uh, that's this week's podcast. Uh, I'm John Myers from News 10. That's Anthony York from the Los Angeles Times. We'll see you next time.